This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly slice of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, your podcast host, and this is episode 215. This week, digital editor Alex catches up with Letitia Clark, author of Bitter Honey, about the cuisine of Sardinia, the Italian island that she now calls home. They discuss the opinion-dividing cured fish robotaga, why we should all adopt aperitivo, and we hear some very interesting sheep cheese chat. So, hello, it's Alex here. Um, if you've received our new September issue of the magazine, you've probably seen our stunning Cook Like a Local guide to Sardinia. And I'm chatting to Letitia Clark, author of new book Bitter Honey, about her recipes and stories from this wild-edged Italian island. So welcome, Letitia, from dialing in from Sardinia, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. Hi. <laughs> it's nice to be here. Um, so I'd like to start with a quote from the preface of your book that explains your experience with Italy and Sardinia, if you don't mind me quoting back to you. Um, so it goes, Italian cooking is adored worldwide because it is the food of the home and is therefore ultimately comfort food. Comfort food is food that makes you either feel at home or think of home. It doesn't matter where you are or whose home you happen to be in, it just instills in you that warm, fuzzy, Winnie the Pooh feeling that you're somewhere safe, eating something good and all is not lost. As I said, I'm not Italian, not even close, but somehow Italian food takes me home. Lovely. <laughs> so, very weird hearing it read back to me. <laughs> yeah. But nice, in my it's weird in a nice voice. way. <laughs> The reason why I wanted to quote that is because 
you don't pretend in any part of the book or in any marketing of the book that you are Italian or Sardinian, um, but you do have a very close connection to the island. So do you want to start by telling our readers how you were introduced to Sardinia and your experience with the people you've met out there? Yeah, uh, so... I mean, I say I'm not even close to being Italian, and I'm not really. I actually have a a, a sort of great-grandmother who was born and raised in Italy, but um, she was very much kind of English, but ended up, they moved out there. Her, her father was a sculptor, um, and he worked out there. So I sort of always knew that there was a distant family connection, but it never really, um, never really crossed kind of into my life. And then... Um, I I worked as a chef for many years in London and um, worked in lots of restaurants, a lot of which were Italian-themed or Italian-based. Um, and the first restaurant that I ever worked in was called The Dock Kitchen, which has recently closed, I think. But the head chef there, Stevie Paul, uh, had trained at the River Cafe and he his knowledge of Italian food was very extensive and uh all of the food we cooked all kinds of food there and I loved all of it. I mean I've you know I've, I've never met a cuisine I didn't like I love all ty- all kinds of food um but the Italian food something about it really kind of hit me um and stayed with me always and it's predominantly olive oil I mean I have a sort of undying love of olive oil which I don't think I will ever lose um and that working in that restaurant was the first time that I'd really tried really good extra virgin olive oil and and that sort of pepperiness and that strength of flavor was so kind of amazing to me so I'd just never eaten anything like it and even though I mean you know I didn't grow up in the 50s where you could only buy olive oil in a pharmacy or anything like my grandmother did but Um, we definitely never had good oil at home. My mum wasn't, you know, she's not really a sort of foodie. She just buys everything in the supermarket. She doesn't really think about it. She just makes what she can. But um, that eating that oil and using that produce um, in that restaurant really kind of opened my mind and made me fall in love with Italian food at the beginning. And then I I went to Italy a few times over my life with my sort of family and and I went on an art course there actually um when I was about 18 and I always I was always sort of in love with the with the food but I never really thought about living there I guess just because I always thought I was actually always a bit kind of obsessed with France as well I always thought I would live in France because I knew I spoke French as a language more than Italian and uh, I always liked French culture as well so Anyway, I never imagined that I would end up living there. And then in the last cooking job that I ever did, I was working in uh, Marito in Hackney. Um, and I One met... of my favourites. The- <laughs> yeah, which is a lovely <laughs> restaurant. Um, and I met this Sardinian guy called Luca, who was a chef with me. And uh, he just had a brilliant sense of humour. He had a great sense of fun. And he had this enormous smile, which was very contagious. Um, and... I think anyone that works in hospitality and has worked with Italians know that a lot of them do have this um, great kind of capacity for joking and and joy and a lot of joy and um, sort of being a bit silly. And obviously, you know, that's quite welcome in a kitchen environment because it can be very intense work and quite sort of long and tiring and and occasionally quite sort of heavy. Um, So it's nice when you have the sort of joker that comes in and Luca was very much the joker and it was always making funny jokes and his, you know, he had this very strong accent and it was all just sort of very innocent and fun and playful. And anyway, we became very good friends and then we eventually became a couple as well. Um, And he, 
I was sort of talking about moving out of London because I'd been in London for seven years and I, I was born and, and grew up in the sort of middle of nowhere in, in Devon and I'd always wanted to set something up in the middle of nowhere as well. I'm not really a sort of city person. So I was saying to Luca, you know, I want to go back to Devon maybe and set something up, something small, a little B&B or a little tiny cafe or something simple. Um, and he was saying, well, what the hell am I going to do in Devon? You know? um, and I was, so we sort of talked about it a bit and he was like, well, there's lots of opportunities in Sardinia. You know, it's, it's very undiscovered. It's, a, it's got an amazing food culture. You'd love it. You love Italian food. Um, let's go there. So I sort of, wow. <laughs> it was a little impulsive and my dad was obviously like, oh God, you just decide what you want to do and then you just do it. And um, you need to think about these things and everything. But I was kind of, you know, I was interested and I've always, I guess, kind of had a slightly kind of romantic streak where I've been excited by new places that are slightly underexplored. And so we went to, we moved, to, we made the decision to move and we moved there three years ago now this summer is my sort of third year anniversary um and we sort of talked about setting something up and Luca learned to make cheese and we were going to open something together um and then actually the relationship ended but we've stayed friends so uh we're, we're still good friends and he has opened he's he's sort of taken over a hotel and he's running a hotel so he's kind of realizing his side of the dream, which is great. And then I ended up writing Bitter Honey, which was kind of my side of my dreams. I always wanted to write about food as well as cook it. So, yeah, that's kind of the, Amazing. my life. Amazing, what a story. <laughs> my life in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, um, great. Yeah. And so here I am and then writing book two um, and then still looking for something that I could build or open, but obviously it's not the perfect time to be opening anything right now. So it's kind of keeping it in the back of my mind and figuring out how I would make it work. But the place where yeah. we are, sh the place where we are shooting this book is very, uh, it's very amazing place with lots of sort of slightly rundown property, which is very cheap and potentially the sort of opportunities to build things. And the people that run this B&B have, set up amazing things so it's a very kind of inspiring environment to be in as well so that's mm. good so. well watch out for your <laughs> B &B. B &B Turismo. <laughs> yeah exactly one day we'll get um, there so speaking of like sardinian cuisine so it's the second largest island in the mediterranean which i found out in my research um, and nestled between italy spain and north africa so it's been colonized by many different um cultures and but has still managed to retain its own independent identity and unique cuisine hasn't it so yeah in your book you do you say that Bataga Bataga, Bataga yeah <laughs> Sardinia because it's ancient beautiful and otherworldly which I was very intrigued about so <laughs> can we start with that and what, what it is I actually don't know what it is yeah so, so uh Bataga is it's the the row of um, grey mullet, which breed um, in Sardinia, especially in the area where I live near Oristano. Um, they live in kind of semi salt water, brackish water. So it's not it's not they don't live in the sea. They live in sort of inland lakes, um, and they breed there. And the sacks of roe, so the the sacks of the eggs, um, are taken out of the fish. The fish are eaten as meat, and the roe sacks are then dried. Um, salted and then dried and eaten once dry as potaga. Um And they're sort of, it's quite a strange thing to look at. It's sort of sausage, slightly flattened sausage. 
uh, kind of ambery in colour, and the Sardinians eat it mostly very simply prepared. So you grate it into pasta sauce um, or you slice it and eat it on the music paper bread, which is that very thin kind of... um, it's almost like a cracker, but you couldn't, I mean, you shouldn't really call it a cracker because it's a bit sort of, it makes you think of those little square crackers you buy in packets. But yeah. Yeah, it's very thin. It's a flatbread, I guess, but it's, it's the texture is very crisp. It's very thin. It's just made in, with semolina and water and cooked in a wood-fired oven. And it's very traditional Sardinian bread. Um, oh, so, that, so that's Sardinian, specifically Sardinian. Yeah, so um, that's a kind of a bread that you would eat with every meal, every every day. Um, and is still made in a very traditional way, mostly, and um, eaten every day by most Sardinians. And it's very, it's very good. It's very Moorish. It's a, the perfect gift to take home. I always say when people come out mm. here and they're like, "Oh, I want to buy something to take home to the family." I always say, "Buy some panna cotta." Um, and it's very versatile. They use it a lot uh, in all kinds of dishes. You can kind, of, you can wet it in broth or sauce, and then it becomes like a pasta sheet. Or you can eat it, obviously, dry with anything. And it's great because instead of having to buy fresh bread or make fresh bread every day, this stuff lasts forever. So you always have bread, which is very important in Sardinian culture to eat bread with every meal. Um, and that was why it was in, invented to sort of last for weeks when shepherds went away to tend their flocks or whatever. So, um, so yeah, they normally eat botaga with the, that bread and then a drizzle of very good olive oil over the top or... Or you can turn it into this amazing pate, which the recipe for which is in is in bitter honey, which is one of my favourite um, recipes, but is very, very fishy. So if you're a sort of fish fan, then that's one for you. Um, and it's, I tried to sort of t- try to kind of relate it to anchovies a bit. I mean, it's it's a bit like anchovies in that you get that amazing umami, um, umami flavour. So it's really strong. It's really fishy. It's really savoury, but it also has a kind of sweetness, a bit like... Um, anchovies and you can use it in the same way so you can kind of melt it into a sauce at the beginning or you can grate it over something at the end and if you're serving in Sardinia the way that they use it a lot is if so for example in Italy you make a pasta sauce and you always serve it with the grated parmesan on the top or whatever which gives it that like final savoriness and richness and kick and it's the nice kind of finishing touch if you're making a pasta a fish-based pasta sauce in Sardinia, then you would use batagra in the same way. So you would grate it over the top um, and it would give it that like extra kick because it's not that common to eat fish with cheese in Italian culture. So the batagra works as the sort of the, the, the substitute for parmesan, if you see what I mean. Ah, so, great. Yeah, yeah I've, I'd never heard of it. So, um, but you've got a whole chapter about, well, a whole like double page spread about it. So yeah, I thought I'd, yeah. I'd ask you. <laughs> Um, so some of those recipes that you uh, mentioned, like with the music paper bread, um, yeah. which is a lovely name, um, <laughs> and with the pate, you recommend to have a aperitivo hour. Yeah. And you do talk about aperitivo hour being really sacred to Sardinians in your book. So what can you tell us a bit more about how aperitivo hour is a little bit different in Sardinia to the rest of Italy and specific drinks and dishes that they have at this time? Yeah. Um, so aperitivo is like, it's just a, one of my favourite bits of, sort of Italian culture and Sardinian culture. And in this respect, I think Sardinia is sort of probably treats their aperitivo quite similarly to the rest of Italy. It's just, it's a sort of a drink, 
that you have before you sit down and have your real meal. And normally you would have it out and about. So you go for an aperitivo with friends and or you go for an aperitivo as a couple before you go back and have dinner or whatever, or you go for an aperitivo before you go out for dinner. Um, and it's just a really, it's a really lovely thing because it's it's always a sort of cold, probably slightly sweet, bitter drink, like a, you know, Aperol spritz has become massive in the UK. Like we're all into Aperol spritzes now, but that was kind of like a traditional aperitivo in Italy and Campari, obviously, which yeah. has like luckily been taken over in England as well because I love it and it's nice that people drink it there um so anything kind of bitter and uh just want to show you something yeah you've got your own bottle (laughs) that's a huge bottle is it or is it the camera (laughs) no it's a 300 centiliter bottle of Campari that my boyfriend got me for my 30th because that's a good present so much (laughs) anyway carry on (laughs) um yeah, so like a, a slightly bitter drink and then you always sort of have what I love about bars in Sardinia, you always get free snacks. And I think it's so sad that like I go to a bar in England, no one gives you free anything. There's no way you're getting free snacks with your drinks. <laughs> um, and that is really sad because it just makes it, it makes you feel like special and, and it, it, you know, you always get that little sense of joy when anything free happens which is so rare and in it you know in Sardinia they always bring you a little plate of cold cuts there's always some bits of cheese and some uh, salami and then almost always olives and crisps just plain salted crisps which I love I could eat them all day every day um, and it just goes so well with the drink and it's I mean it's even better than the dinner really I mean I like aperitivo more than the actual dinner even if we go out for pizza after aperitivo the aperitivo is the bit that I enjoy the most because it's it just feels like the build-up as well to you know it's the exciting mm. bit before the actual dinner and the drinks they're just delicious I mean Campari Spritz is just the best drink that was ever invented agreed um, <laughs> with the Negroni as well yeah exactly and it goes so well with salty snacks you know you just need those salty olives or those salty crisps next to that very sweet and bitter drink it's just a a really lovely thing so yeah I think more people should aperitivo in England as well it should be yeah adopted. agreed and yeah. you've got a recipe for fried sage leaves and beer butter as an aperitivo snack as well, which I love the sound of. Yeah, that's um, a really good one. So a lot of the, the dishes um, in Sardinia and aperitivo hour, any hour are yeah. quite simple, aren't they? And that's because the core of Sardinian cooking is simplicity. And yeah. again, in your book, you say that uh, Luca's nonna, Guilia, grew up in extreme poverty and she describes her family as Poveri Mabelli, which means poor but beautiful. Um, yeah. So it, this this Italy's cucina povera has ironically become quite popular and there are like restaurants dedicated to it in England, which is quite funny because the whole idea is that it's about literally making the most of what you have. And it's great that it's being elevated so much. But um, can you tell us a bit more about cucina povera, dishes you've tried in Sardinia and that culture in general? Yeah, so I think um, it's always one of those things that I talk about quite a lot with people from Italy and not from Italy about this kind of idea of romanticising poverty, which is a bit problematic. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's nothing romantic about, about poverty, obviously. Absolutely. Um, and it that's one of the things that I think you have to be a bit sort of careful about. Um, and that's something that I definitely felt a bit conscious about when I was writing Bitter Honey. But at the same time, 
you know, Nonna Julia, who was Luca's Nonna, is Luca's Nonna. Um, I used to love when she would talk about the stories from her youth because, I mean, she did live an incredible, an incredibly hard life in many ways. But it does, you know, that kind of that kind of life does place a lot of emphasis on the very simple things, but the things that are available to everybody. And one of those things is food. And I think that the one of the most amazing and special things about Italian cuisine is that it's a very diplomatic cuisine. It's, it's not an expensive cuisine. And, you know, everybody can make and eat a pizza because the three ingredients that make pizza are some of the cheapest ingredients out there. I mean, you need flour to make a simple dough. You need tomatoes from a tin, even. You don't have to mm-hmm. use fresh, fancy tomatoes. Um, and you need, you know, you can use cheap mozzarella. You don't have to use mozzarella di bufala. Like most of my favorite pizzerias don't use really fancy mozzarella. So it's very, you know, it's very approachable and um, everybody should be able to make the majority of dishes in Italian cuisine because they are based around very humble, simple ingredients that are not expensive. So I think that was one of the things that it was really important for me to, to get across in Bitter Honey that, you know, everybody should be able to make these dishes and hopefully everybody can and will and w- would enjoy them. And I think some of my favourite dishes are very, very simple and very, very rustic and, and based around very few ingredients. And, um, you know, I just think sometimes less really is more and a lot of Italian cooking is about that. And I have I have this friend in Sardinia, Loredana, who made me these this dish the other day. And it was one of the nicest dishes I've eaten for ages. And it was just, um, it's it's meatballs, but they're not meatballs because there's no meat in them, made of bread. <laughs> um, so it's just bread with, which you mix breadcrumbs. So like old, stale, you know, stale bread. So you're using up something. Stale bread mixed with some eggs and some Parmesan and you form them into little balls and then you poach them in a tomato sauce and you serve it with extra cheese and basil. And it's just, I mean, it's, you know, four ingredients, cheese, bread, yeah. tomatoes, basil. And it was just so delicious and so simple and so filling. And I was, you know, just that just kind of epitomizes the cucina povera kind of ethos. But it, it's not, it's also not about suffering. You know, you're not eating terrible food. It's the point is that you eat incredibly well, even though you don't need to spend much money, which is kind of my whole philosophy about food. I really don't believe that to make good food, you need to spend a lot of money. Um, and I also, yeah, that's kind of, that's my philosophy. It, well, yeah, it's, it's a good one to have. And also <laughs> it's about um, ingrained into that is um, about not wasting and eating seasonally, which is something that um, British people have started to do. Well, I feel like over the past like decade, we got into a quite a bad way with um just getting whatever we want um actually longer than a decade but getting whatever we want when we want but uh, I feel like people now are eating a lot more seasonally and I love that with Sardinians they claim that the veg quality is so high that they must rarely be tampered with uh, (laughs) you talked about so um which veg is the most abundant on the island you know and how do they prepare it so they're they're pretty famous for artichokes they do have some of the best artichokes I think in Europe, um, and I know that um, almost all the artichokes, the first artichokes that come into season in England, are almost always grown in Sardinia. So they're, they're the sort of earliest in the season as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same. When do they some, come into season? Sorry. 
in they start Sardinia? they start I start seeing them in about January and then they finish right up and well they carry on right up until the end of April um that's the growing that I've seen here anyway but the they're they're very there's a specific type that they grow in Sardinia which is very very spiky and, and greener than the sort of purple ones and I think they're really delicious um and they're very juicy and tender and and kind of sweet uh, so I eat I eat a lot of artichokes, which has kind of been a massive change in my diet because I literally would have never like eaten an artichoke in England at all. Um, but I love them. So those kind of the, the artichokes are a big fit part of the diet, and then obviously all the classic kind of Italian sort of aubergines, peppers, red peppers, um, tomatoes, a lot of tomatoes, obviously, and and then a lot of kind of lettuces, bitter greens. Some in the winter they have nice kind of cab- cabbages. The cavolo nero is nice, and um, chards and spinaches and things like that. But I mean, a lot of it's it is very seasonal, so you only get. I mean, I try and shop. I try and get all of my fruit and vegetables in in the local or- Oristano market, and it's very much only what is growing at that time. And the, the produce changes from week to week. You know, one week I'll go and I'll think, oh, I'll get those carrots next week. And then you go next week and there's, there's no sign of any carrots. Like it changes very, very fast. And you have to be quite inventive to kind of come up with enough dishes to use up what's in season at that time. And there is, you know, weeks of the year where it's literally going to be one type of cabbage for like four weeks and that's it. <laughs> um, but in England, I feel like we were really good at that before, you know, we would just eat Swede for the entire winter or something because that was all that was growing. Um, but now, you know, we have everything all the time and it's it's very different. And although that's amazing and I do miss that and I, you know, I often complain to my family, I'm like, oh, I just want an avocado. And, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, because obviously avocado have become such a like big part of the UK's diet and Absolutely. you just can't get you just can't get them here you know I just don't eat avocados the first thing I do when I arrive back in England is to eat three avocados in a row and then feel really really ill for the rest of the day so yeah because they're quite intense <laughs> yeah that many they're really rich yeah they're really really rich <laughs> so if you haven't eat, been eating them for months and then you suddenly gorge on them I can tell you your your insides do not thank you after that um but it's yeah I think it is amazing because it you just know that what you're eating is almost exclusively grown on the island or you know maybe mainland Italy but mostly on the island and I always go I go to the market and I ask every single stallholder I'm like my question is on and I'm like is this Sardinian and they're always like see si, see si, come here come here like like me like a Sardinian <laughs> as I am and then everyone all gets very like patriotic and proud about the whole thing and it's very yeah it's part of the fun. Oh, it sounds great. I'd love to go to the market inside of here. Stick around for more chat from Letitia, including exactly what crazy cheese is. And on to like meat and dairy. So um, they obviously use what uh, the produce and the livestock they have. And in Sardinia, you said that sheep outnumber people three to one. So <laughs> yeah. how, do, how do Sardinian people, would you say Sards or Sardinians? Yeah, Sards, you can say Sards. sards. They call how do they make the most of, of the um, the sheep? So the like the sheep are yeah, very widespread. There are sheep everywhere, um, almost exclusively outside and free roaming. I never see sort of sheep in pens or in barns, which is nice. 
Um, and because sheep are very hardy, I think, you know, the land can be incredibly barren for a lot of the year. Like at the moment now, at the end of August, well, we're in September now, um, you know, it's very, very dry. It hasn't rained for weeks. Um, and the sheep, you know, sheep are one of the only animals that can really kind of survive that terrain. Like, so it's sort of perfectly suited for sheep farming. Um, and there is a very strong tradition of sheep farming in Sardinia. Um, and I think they do, they make a, it's funny because I sort of had talked about to people a bit about why they don't make more sheep's yogurt and sheep's butter and sheep's milk. And because it's, it, they're really good products. You know, sheep's yogurt can be absolutely delicious, more, more delicious than cow's yogurt sometimes. Um, and the same with sheep's butter. It's a really interesting product and, um, but they don't, it's just not that culture, but they do make a lot of different cheeses with the sheep's milk um, and all of which, almost all of which are very delicious. There's that crazy cheese, which maggots, which has maggots in, which is sort of very famous in Sardinia, but it's oh, not one, not one for the faint hearted. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of kind of YouTube videos about people finding this crazy cheese in Sardinia. It's a bit of a kind of like novelty. What's it called? It's called kazumatsu, which means crazy cheese. <laughs> and um, gotcha. and it's, it's a kind of pecorino, so like a sheep's milk cheese, which they let flies uh, lay their eggs in and then the maggots hatch and eat their way through the cheese. And then uh. they, they pass the cheese through their bodies. And so you're eating kind of semi-maggot digested cheese, which is that very... Is- <laughs> so niche <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty strange but a lot of sardinians say it's the reason that they live such long lives because they're famous for living incredibly long lives um and they swear by its sort of health properties and i mean it tastes it tastes pretty awful i can't i can't say i enjoy it and the smell is pretty pretty awful as well but but yeah a, a lot of the older generation especially like nonna julia used to love it she was always eating a lot of it and saying it was the, the key to her long life so wow yeah. well moving moving on <laughs> <laughs> moving on from um, that. to my favorite i think this could be my favorite dish in the world like obviously it always changes but i do <laughs> love it suckling pig yeah so that is sardinia's most iconic dish isn't it um yeah Yes, and um, there's lots of lovely anecdotes in your book about how you kind of have a suckling pig in the middle of the table and everyone comes around and people you've never seen before and just constantly mm. coming in because of the, around the carnival time. And um, yeah, do you want to elaborate on that a bit? <laughs> yeah, so suckling pig um, is kind of Sardinia's national dish. It's very, very famous and it's the dish that they always have for sort of important events or religious festivals or birthdays or weddings or celebrations and there's an amazing culture of cooking outside here you know there's sort of spear a pig and then literally stick it in the ground and light a fire next to it and there's all kinds of ways of cooking it which are amazing and it's always the man's job so there's always this sort of group of men discussing how they're going to cook their pig and um it's it's quite a ritual and there's something very nice about it. Um, and there's a lot of the most sort of famous Sardinian hotels will probably put on an evening where they will they will cook a suckling pig for you over an open fire. 
And it is a delicious meat. It's 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 kind of you don't need any sauce. They never serve any sauce with anything, any of the meat in Sardinia. It's very it's very simple. So it's just you just roast the pig, but because it has this this skin, which becomes this amazing crackling. <laughs> We're all getting hungry now. Um, yeah, the the crackling kind of in, encloses the meat, so the meat stays really tender while it's cooking, and then the crackling obviously becomes deliciously crisp. So you get this perfect combination of very crispy salty skin and very soft tender meat which is just perfect and doesn't really need any garnish or sauce or anything so it's kind of the it's the perfect meat and it's it's what they eat on christmas day it's what they eat on easter day you know it's literally every single important day that you will eat suckling pig so it's a big part of the culture Oh, that's another reason to come. Um, so speaking of roast and not having a uh, sauce with your meat, can you tell us about your famous, well, I'm, famous. I think it's famous. It's so famous. <laughs> so famous. <laughs> uh, your roast chicken gravy sauce story. Yeah, so this is when, um, when Luca first came to meet my father and actually they got on like houses on fire they were so they really really liked each other a lot um and I think my dad was quite sad when that when our relationship ended I'm sure Luca was very sad so um because they're sort of similar they've got a similar joie de vivre you know they both love good food love drinking um and Luca came down to my dad's house or like my family house in in Devon um, and my dad cooked us a roast. My dad is a, a kind of classic English roast man. He has to have a roast at least once a week, preferably nice. twice or three times a week. Mm. Um, and he's a big gravy fan, a big, big gravy fan. And he, I don't think he owns a single jumper or T-shirt that is not stained with gravy. Um, he just always dribbles it on himself because he loves it so much. He used to drink it from the jug when I was a child. I remember my mum. like Our brother does that as well. <laughs> <laughs> my mum like slapping his hands away from the jug. Like, no, no. Um, and so he made us a sort of roast lamb with gravy. And Luca had never had gravy before and he'd never had this sort of English roast with all the trimmings. And, you know, it's because we, it's amazing how many things you have on a plate in an English roast, you know, like I mean, in my family, we do like two or three vegetables, maybe one of them yeah. in white, in white sauce, like leeks in white sauce or something. And then we probably have roast potatoes, then we'd have carrots, then we'd have broccoli, then we'd have peas or, you know, like 20 different things on your plate, which is about as un-Sardinian as it gets. You know, like you've got one thing on your plate most of the time and then separate plates later for other things. So this kind of like amazing combination of different things and Luca's eyes was popping out of his head. Like, what is this bizarre kind of combination of everything? And then this gravy, which he'd never tried before and it is kind of nuts when you think about gravy, like how many ingredients go into it. You know, my family always put like jelly in it to make it a bit sweet as well. And then like, oh. it's good. Yeah, if you've got like red currant jelly or anything, like a bit of a bit of that in the end of the gravy, just to give it that little sweetness is a good thing. So that, yeah, so it's like, there's jelly in there, there's wine in there, there might be cider in there, there might be like stock, then there's, you know, flour. My mum puts flour in to make it a bit thicker and stuff. So anyway, this this sort of crazy sauce that Luca had never experienced. And he was like, what is this sauce? And my dad was like, it's not sauce, it's gravy. Um, and Luca used to yeah, then, you know, talk in this kind of hallowed voice about this amazing gravy sauce that he'd experienced in England. And he used to try and get me to recreate it in Sardinia quite often. But it was, 
it's weird. It's just some of these things just don't translate. It just doesn't make it across. So gravy in Italy, yeah, I wouldn't recommend trying. It just does. It's one of those things that doesn't translate. It's 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 great in England, and I love mm-hmm. it. But I'm never going to try and recreate it in Italy. It just seems wrong. You sort of you need to drizzle your olive oil on your meat, and that's enough. <laughs> But I liked it how you kind of took that and you made your own like roast chicken that wasn't, you know, and it's showing how you adapt all cuisines. And it's not just a cuisine, is it? It's like a micro cuisine because your cuisine when you were with Luca was, um, you know, an amalgamation of the two. And I just, I love that. And I think it's very easy to, we won't get into it because I could talk for hours about this, (laughs) but like tokenism and, um, saying like Italian food is just this 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 um yeah Caribbean food is just this 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 um whereas if you think about British food and how different communities and cultures and just anecdotes like that have changed how people eat and their dishes and then some of them take and some of them don't um I just find it it's amazing how many different little micro micro cuisines we have in the world like there's probably millions and millions and millions of them yeah. so yeah so I think when we talk about Sardinian cuisine you know we we can do it we've done a, just a podcast about it <laughs> but but we don't you know everything is different depending on your household and who you've grown up with where you've traveled to um who your family is so I think um it's just quite a nice story to uh just show that everything is adaptable and yeah um, yeah. I think yeah I think that's like a really good point and I think um, you know in the introduction I said something about a lot of having a lot of fear about being very authentic and all this kind Mm -hmm. of idea of authenticity but then it's also you know who judges what is authentic who decides how does it come about you know and every recipe is always this kind of weird amalgamation of people's own interpretations or things you know they made it because they were missing this ingredient so they changed it to include this ingredient and then it becomes that becomes their recipe their interpretation and I think that is something to be celebrated rather than to be you know to becomes an area that is difficult to talk about or is some kind of appropriation or something like that and I think you know striving for some kind of ideal authenticity is is sort of fruitless and um, not necessarily you know it's not possible either to find this kind of like perfect authentic recipe and I think that was really important to me that you know like this is how I cook this is how Luca and I cook together this is how Luca's nonna cooks this is how this person I've met in Sardinia cooks like there is no way that I would pretend that bitter honey is a kind of comprehensive guide to the entire cuisine of Sardinia because you know it's an impossible feat so it's I think what's more interesting is is yeah your interpretation and your personal the way you cook and the way that interacts with the way other people cook and and just being open-minded and being you know interested in other people's interpretations not being closed and saying well that's not right you know there is no right and wrong way to do anything and I think or like any art or any skill like cooking is an amazing mix of all kinds of people and skills and ideas and and that's what makes it so interesting and and so kind of endlessly fascinating you know we're always talking about food we're talking about food now we're doing a whole podcast talking about food it's just you know it's it's an amazing thing that is ever growing and expanding and and that's really something that should be celebrated 
Yeah. Well, I think on that note, we'll probably end on that note because it's <laughs> my a, great it's world nice vision. To think of about. Food. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great to chat to you. Um, if you want to um, try Letitia's recipes, we've got some delicious ones in the current magazine, the September issue. We've got ricotta figs, thyme, and honey, and there's a watermelon granita, I think. And oh, yeah, lovely, that's lovely. Yeah, sardinian chicken. Um, and also, obviously, we've um, from my quotes, you've you you know that I've read the Bitter Honey book, which is brilliant, and you can get that now on from all like bookshops, can't you? And on Amazon, etc. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, thanks so much for chatting. And thank you for having um, me. Yeah, and speak to you soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. So that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you want to explore more of our back catalogue of over 200 episodes, you'll find us on all the main platforms and on our website, olivemagazine.com, where you'll also find tons of useful recipes and great cooking advice. Why not try a subscription to Olive Magazine this summer and get the very best recipes delivered to help inspire your cooking? To take advantage of our current offer of three issues for only £5, go to buysubscriptions.com forward slash olpod720 that's o-l-p-o-d 720 terms and conditions apply stay safe and we'll see you next week when we'll have a brand new episode to listen to